0: Okay, we are starting the book of Shemoz, the book of Exodus. And uh, there's right away an immediate change of direction. So, of course, the word Shemos, the Tzitz parsha, means names. And it begins with delineating the names of the sons of of Jacob. And this is a pattern we see again and again throughout the Torah that uh, the Torah likes to count how how many Jews there are. In fact, we're told here in several places that The Almighty loves the Jewish people so much, just like someone who has tons of money likes to count it, even though he knows how much it is, but there's the pleasure (laughs) of the act of counting that, you know, that's just, it's just wonderful. Sometimes you count because you don't know what the number is. The Almighty doesn't need to count to know how many people there are. The, The Almighty knows that already. But to demonstrate to us how much he loves us, he counts us again and again to just show us that just like someone who has this precious pile of of gold, he would just, he just has such joy and delight in the lion counting it. Same thing with the Almighty and us. So we get an overview of the names of the sons of Jacob. And then that generation, Joseph and his brothers, and that entire generation, they pass on. And then the people start growing and burgeoning and propagating and proliferating in vast numbers. In fact, the Midras tells us, a little bit surprising, that if you look at verse seven, where it describes the Jewish people were fruitful they teemed the increase became strong very very much or very very much uh, that are uh, six uh, descriptions of how much they grew because some women would even have uh six toplets she did have six children in one in one gestation and that's so that that's the growth on the Jewish people's part and there's also a new king for Egypt who doesn't know Joseph even he doesn't know him literally or he doesn't acknowledge him. He doesn't acknowledge that Joseph's uh, tremendous contribution to Egypt, and he starts to develop a sinister, malicious, and clever plot. Uh, He starts scheming to try to destroy the people. So what does he say? He says to his people, Behold, the people, the children of Israel, are more numerous and stronger than we are. This uh, new group of foreigners that are here, they're growing so fast and he's kind of um, playing on the xenophobia of the of the local people. let's outsmart them lest we become more lest they become more numerous and it may be that if war will occur, it too may join our enemies and wage war against us and go up from the land. If you actually read that, it sounds like the ramblings of a madman the, the, there's a there's a fear here there's a threat the Jewish people are a threat, but why? Because maybe they'll become more numerous. And it may be that they're a war worker and they'll join our enemies and they'll wage war against us and they'll go off from the land. It's not clear if he likes them or doesn't want them. Apparently he doesn't like them because they're so numerous and taking over. But his real fear is that they'll leave. So it's, it's kind of <laughs> emblematic of anti-Semitism throughout history is that we're kind of needed and loathed at the same time. It's, it's really strange. Like, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll betray our people, but on one hand, we're treated as people who won't leave, on the other hand, we people treated as people that will always betray our host nation and, uh, and go join some other enemies. Now, we don't get a, a detailed description in the text as to ha- what methods he used to outsmart the people, uh, what cunning methods, uh, what schemes did he use to get them into enslavement, but we're told in the Midrash that what he would do was he would have these big national Projects, and he would encourage all Egyptian patriots to come join along. And in fact, Pharaoh himself would join, and all the everyone would join. And once he got them into a pattern of working, all the Egyptians stopped working, and said, "You guys continue working." And that's the way he kind of got them. You know, he just uh, plotted uh, uh, using these methods to get them to work. And once they got working, he made sure they didn't stop working. And I think it's interesting because this is another tactic used by a lot of. Uh, a lot of uh, anti-Semites uh, throughout history. Uh, certainly, uh, in World War II, uh, Hitler used this to perfection, where he wouldn't necessarily outline his big plan at the beginning. You know, he would say, "Well, we need pe- we need workers, and it's, it's all work camps, and you know, just work a little bit." And Stalin would use this as well. Once someone has a certain quota, then that becomes their quota, even if that's their greatest output. Right, your your highest output becomes your minimum requirement. Uh, and that that that's just a the theme that we see again throughout Jewish history time and time again. And of course, this is the beginnings of the Egyptian exile. Now, if you remember, when Abraham was selected as being God's chosen person to father the Jewish people, the chosen people, a caveat to that is the fact that they're going to have to be foreigners in a foreign land. So what's interesting is, We don't look at the Egyptian, what's called Egyptian exile or the Egyptian enslavement as something that is, you know, uh, uh, not planned. It's it's, it's, it's like an error on our part, a mistake. It seems from the the text and from uh, Genesis with Abraham and even afterwards we'll see in a little bit in Deuteronomy that all this, this, whatever's going to happen in the next few chapters all that is necessary if we're going to be God's people. God tells Abraham, your children are going to have the land of Israel, they're going to be my people, they're going to be God's representatives and ambassadors to the world, chosen nation, all that wonderful, but there is a grueling basic training. It's kind of like the uh, hell week of the navy. Yeah. Right? They, there's something they need to undergo, and that's not because of a sin, because remember, Abraham hasn't sinned, his, his descendants don't even exist at that time but Abraham is told your descendants will have to undergo this uh, because that is necessary for everything else that follows indeed in Deuteronomy in chapter four I believe we're told that the Almighty took us out of Egypt mikur habarza from the iron crucible of Egypt and what is an iron crucible that was a tool used to purify gold which again demonstrates that the Almighty is almost telling Abraham, Abraham, you're gold. And Isaac and Jacob and the families, they're they're gold, they're fantastic. But even gold sometimes has slight impurities. And therefore, we're going to take this gold and put it on the fire, on the hot seat, in the crucible, and it's not a very comfortable experience, but when you emerge, then you're much more purified, and indeed... I'm jumping ahead a little bit, spoiler alert. Once the Jewish people leave Egypt, the very first thing that happens is they have them the experience at Sinai and they get the Torah and they become the Jewish nation. So it's interesting for us as a perspective, when we go through what's going to happen to the Jewish people, it's this is part of the plan. And the question is, of course, why? Why, in order for us to be a chosen people, in order for us to be the people of God, In order for us to have the Torah, we have to have this experience, several hundred years of enslavement in Egypt. And indeed, it's it's incredible that the second we leave, once the training is over, right away, we get our destiny, we get the Torah. Abraham didn't have, God didn't give Abraham the Torah, Isaac, Jacob, whatever they got, Torah was through a different method. God didn't give them the Torah. So I want to suggest that in order for us to have the Torah, in order for us to be God's people... We have to learn to reframe our humanity, our individualness. In order to be God's people, we have to stop being our own people, so to speak. We have to disavow, so to speak, our own selfish perspective and learn to be slaves of God or servants of God. And that's what really what the Torah is. The Torah is a, is a guidebook for people that are have their handcuffs and are just following what God tells them to do. And everything that we "quote-unquote" outside, isolated from God, want to do, Torah says a lot of things. Torah says, no, this is not what you do. And indeed, we are we find descriptions of Jews and especially Jews subject to Torah as akin to enslavement. Now, this is the good kind of enslavement, but it seems that this is this is predicated upon a national enslavement. Over hundreds of years, where people have their, almost their individuality, or at least their notions of freedom removed. And indeed, we'll see that, we'll see that, that when the notion of being saved, salvation, coming out of Pharaoh's dominion, when that's suggested to the people, they say, that's beyond our conception. They have become so submitted to Pharaoh. So enslaved that that became their new personality. It, they weren't even plotting to escape. And, and that, that's a condition that prisoners have under very harsh conditions is that they, they have like the Stockholm Syndrome. They start liking it because that's who they are now. And they, if they would be given freedom, they'll say, no, I'd rather stay here. It's strange to us, but that's a mindset. It gets really deeply rooted into the, to the psyche of the people. And then what happens... They have the Exodus. And the Exodus, what's that? The Exodus is a transference of allegiance from Pharaoh to God. And you'll notice, with every step of the Exodus, it's not just about showing the Jewish people the miracles of God or as a way to get the Jewish people out, because you know what, they might could extract us and magically supplant us in, in Israel, and that could happen. That's not, as, that's not any more difficult than everything else that happened or everything else that didn't happen. It's not hard for God, but the process here is a dual process. Number one, to show the people God's dominion. Number two, to show the people Pharaoh's humiliation and and the fact that Pharaoh himself is submitted to God. Thus, the people say, "Oh, Pharaoh, he was our master, but he's subject subject to God." Okay, so that's the real master. And now we we stay who we are. We're slaves, but not to Pharaoh, not to God, and that indeed is liberation. True liberation is when someone is subject to God, and not to any other forces, not a man, and not their internal foreign god, their Yetzer Ra. So that's this uh, iron crucible that we're about to, about to enter. Okay, so, so what do they do? So they forced them to build cities, Pitom and Ramses. They appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them, and ironically, the verse testifies that the more they were inflicted, the more they would grow. And it was just befuddling, and the Egyptians became disgusted because of the Jewish people, because everything that they tried to do, the input that they gave, did not match the output that they expected. So they enslaved the children of Israel with even more crushing harshness, they embittered their lives with hard work, with mortar, with Brits, and with every labor of their fields, all the labors they performed with them, were with crushing harshness. We're told in the Midrash that one of the methods that they would use, a lot of methods that we use of torture, um, but they would force people to do work that they were not suited for. So they would have a man do a woman's job, and a woman do a man's job, and a young person do an old person's job, and an old person do a young person's job, and a frail, small person do a job meant for someone who's really strong, and a strong person, to do a job meant for a frail person. And this is much more than just torture, but this again demonstrates the psychology of enslavement. You want people to say, whatever you're good at, whatever you think you are kind of on your own as an individual, this is what I'm suited for? No, you have no say in the matter. Pharaoh decides what happens to you. And thus, it's more than just torture, it's re-framing, reorienting, what they think of themselves and who they are to make them more and more uh, committed to slavery. And then, of course, the next thing is infanticide. Pharaoh tells the, uh, the midwives that if there's a boy, you kill him. If there's a girl, you keep her alive. Now, why did he go specifically after the boys and not the girls? So Rashi tells us that his... Stargazers and necromancers and gurus, they told him that there's going to be someone who is going to be born, who, a man, who's going to spearhead the Jewish people's exodus. And as a tyrannical, uh, totalitarian, totalitarianistic, just a madman, well, what's the solution? This is what's, this will make Stalin proud. Right? What's the solution if there's me someone out of a nation of, who knows, maybe hundreds of thousands or millions of people. There's gonna be someone who's gonna save the people. Well, kill everyone. That's, that's the solution. Really, really terrible. So he tells the women to kill the boys, but leave the girls alive. And these women feared God. And they actually, not only did they not follow that heinous command, but they actually caused the boys to live. They, they helped, they helped, instead of, uh, of injuring. And he, Pharaoh calls him in and says, "What's the deal?" So he says, "They tell him, listen, they don't—they don't need midwives. These—these—these—these these, these, these Jewish women, they're like animals. Animals don't need midwives. They don't need to go to the, Texas childrens for rabbits. They just—they just have—they just, have, just have their babies naturally, and that's why the Jewish people became. They just started proliferating in such numbers, uh, and apparently they didn't even need uh, midwives. And in fact, these women, got, the Torah testifies upon them that they were God fearing, and they got houses. What that is?" Uh, Rashi tells us is as they became the houses of leadership, the offices of leadership of the Jewish people, descended from these women. Who these, Who are these women? They're, when they're known elsewhere as Yocheved and Miriam. This is Moshe's mother and Moshe's sister. And they became, of course, the uh, matriarchs of greatness. After that plan doesn't work, if infanticide uh, via stopping them while they're still giving birth, that doesn't work. Pharaoh says the next best solution is to take all the boys, all the newborn boys, and throw them into the Nile. And that's the way he'll solve his problem. Now why would he choose to throw the boys into the Nile? Moreover, uh, the verse indicates every boy that will be born, every son that will be born, shall be thrown into the Nile. The fact that he's including every boy, it means not only Jewish boys but even Egyptian boys. And the reason why is because, again, his star stargazers told him that the future redeemer of the people is going to be born as a boy, and he's going to suffer, his his kryptonite is going to be water. So Pharaoh says, okay, well, if, if so, then, then the solution is to throw them all in the water. We'll kill them that way. And Pharaoh didn't know if this child was going to be born from the Jewish people or from the Egyptian people. Maybe it the be an Egyptian leader who's going to help uh, the people out. Now, we do know, by the way, that the rest of the story is that Moshe, who is going to be born in the next chapter, he actually did suffer with water. Uh, Moshe's kryptonite, so to speak, was this episode where the Almighty tells him to go talk to a certain rock. And instead he hits the rock, and that was his sin, so to speak, that prevented him from achieving what he wanted to achieve. His downfall, so to speak, to the degree that he did have a downfall, was in, in relation to water. Okay, so, so what happens? So can you imagine what the story is like? You know, the people are told, there's signs hung up everywhere, that if, if anyone has uh, a baby boy, they're gonna be thrown into the Nile. Uh, what would that cause? The uh, natalism of the country. What would happen if you, if you knew that there's a 50-50 chance whether or not your child will survive? It's likely you may choose maybe to uh, get some pills. I don't know. But what would you do, right? So, what, so, what, so let's read chapter 2 here. A man went from the house of Levi. He took the daughter of Levi. And the woman conceived and gave birth to a son. She saw him, that he was good and she hid him for three months. She couldn't hide him any longer. She put him in a box, and she put him in the water. And then her sisters, they're watching what's going to happen to them. So what's interesting here is that um, there's someone marrying someone else, a man of the house of Levi marrying a daughter of Levi. Who's that? That's Moshe's parents. Because wow. this child's to be, this child's to be Moshe. Now, first of all, it's interesting it doesn't call them by their names, number one. But what's also surprising is we know that Moshe had two older siblings. He had his older sister Miriam and his older... Brother Aaron. So his parents were already married. So why are we, why are we describing the marriage of his parents Anish, right before he's being born when they were already married prior? So there's a, an amazing teaching in the Talmud here in the book of Sota. What happened? Pharaoh decreed all future boys or all boys of this time are going to be thrown into the water. So Amram, who is Moshe's father, and also one of the leaders, the elder sages of Israel, immediately divorces his wife. Why? Because how could you be married under such conditions? So what did everyone else do? They divorced their wives. And then Miriam, the daughter of Amram, she said to her father, you are worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh only wants the boys dead. You want people to be divorced. So no boys are coming and no girls are coming. You're worse than Pharaoh. So he listened to her and he remarried his wife. And that's why he married her. And they indeed had a boy. And of course, what's the and what did everyone else do? Everyone remarried their wives as well. And will you know they'll have to deal with the consequences, but that's not the right approach. The right approach is not to say, well, let's make it even worse. And they had a boy, and she was able to hide him for three months. The reason why she's able to hide it for three months is because he was born a little early. And the stargazers and necromancers and gurus of Egypt, they said, okay, now it seems like the, it seems like the future redeemer of Israel is being conceived. So they said, okay, in nine months, we're going to go through a house to house witch hunt. Well, Moshe was born a few months early, and therefore he was okay for, for a few months. But once he was three months old, then they had, to, she had to do something with him, so she puts him in a box and puts him in the water. And what happens? The stargazers, they say, "Oh, it seems like he's already in the water," so they stop the decree. But Moshe is in the water, but he's floating in this little makeshift boat, and his sisters watching. Okay, so what happens? So Moshe is now in the box; he's floating around. His sisters watching from afar. By the way, as, a, as an aside, parenthetically, there's going to be a time where Miriam, Moshe's sister, is going to be st- uh, struck with leprosy because of what she spoke about her, her brother. And the, the halacha is that a leper has to stay stationary for seven days. And we're told that uh, later on that the Jew, whole Jewish nation, the whole assembly waited till Miriam was finished. And the reason why she had the merit of having the entire assembly wait for her is because when she was a little girl she waited for Moshe to see what's going to happen to him and therefore she she has this merit that people should she waited other people will wait for her as well and who comes no one less than the daughter of Pharaoh and she sees the box and she sends one of her messengers to uh, to take it she finds the baby the baby's crying She's overwhelmed with emotion. She realizes that it's one of the Hebrews. And she says, I'm going to adopt this child. Rashi says, Is that uh, she had a little baby, right? Well, she wasn't feeding him uh, pizza and ice cream, right? She has to find a nurse. But a nurse is predicated on someone who recently had had a baby, biologically. So she went to all the Egyptian women and said, Well, why don't you nurse, uh, nurse the baby? And Moshe refused to nurse. And she's like, he's only willing to eat from a Jewish woman. Must be he's from a Jewish woman himself. And indeed, what happens? If you look at the next verse, in verse seven, his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, i.e., Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, "Shall I go and summon for you a wet nurse from the Hebrew woman, who will nurse the boy from you?" Obviously, those two are connected. He's from the Hebrew. uh, He's a Hebrew boy, and she's suggesting to go find a Hebrew woman, and that indeed made sense that. The reason why she knew that he was a Hebrew was because he refused to nurse. And she said, okay. And who did she choose? She actually brought her back to her mother, who was actually the child's mother. And and then once the child was weaned, he gave her back to the daughter of Pharaoh, and she calls him Moses. So interestingly, Moshe is the prince of Egypt, and he does grow up as well in the house of Pharaoh, in the palace, but actually, the earlier parts of his life, he was actually raised by his mother and his family. Chapter 2, verse 11, Moshe grows up. And this is a very interesting introduction to his character, because for the rest of the Torah, it's going to be Moshe's the central character, of course, central subject of, of the discussion. And it's very interesting to look at what specifically the Torah tells us about Moshe, Right away, on the on the onset of his character development. So the verse reads that it was during that time Moshe grew up, and he went out to his brethren. He saw their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian man hitting a Jewish man of his brethren. Now what's interesting here is that if you remember, back in Abraham, in Parsh's Vayera, when Abraham met the three travelers who turned out to be three angels... We, we pointed out then that it also describes Abraham, he saw, and then he saw again, he had this double vision. And it's interesting, the very first verse about Moshe, uh, that we see that again, that Moshe, he encountered something and he saw, and then he actually saw it again. And this is the only two verses in the Torah where there's a description of someone seeing and then seeing again, twice in the same verse he saw, kind of zoned in. Yeah, same same word, same word. Uh, and it's interesting because that's a connection between Abraham and, and Moshe. Both of them had the same quality of seeing, but not only that, of noticing what someone else is going through. To see something, well, we could all see you know, if if we, you know, if we are blessed by the Almighty to have vision, but to internalize and to you know to make. Uh, you know, to, to to care for the feelings of other people, to see life from their perspective, that's the mark of greatness and the mark of great leader. And indeed, Abraham was like that when he was 99 years old. And what's remarkable is that Moshe—it seems from the very beginning, this is the first episode we know about Moshe. Moshe is going to change and develop and grow over time, but he's already at the mountaintop, so to speak. When he starts, he's already at the level of Abraham. Of of care and concern for others. Okay, so, so Moshe has this double vision. He's able to see the suffering of others. And what what does he do? So we're told in the midrash that he actually tries to intercede on behalf of the Jewish people. We're told that he sees Jewish people schlepping and pulling bricks. So he says, Oh, okay, let me help you, let me try to pull some bricks alongside you. Now if you have six hundred thousand people, slaves, pulling bricks, and Moshe the pampered prince of Egypt, he's going to say, I'm I'm going to come help. I don't really imagine he's making much of a dent in the problem. You know, if you see, how many Jews could he possibly help? Even if he helped 10 Jews or 100 Jews, it's still a drop in the bucket. But I think what this really shows is not about the results, but Moshe's internal motivators. Moshe felt, if other people are suffering, I don't want to be the only one not suffering. I want to suffer alongside them. He experienced the pain of other people. And that unique quality, indeed, we'll see again and again in our introduction to his character. Indeed, I would suggest that the very last thing the Torah tells us about Moshe follows the same lines, and that, indeed, is the mark of the consummate leader, not someone who could pontificate from a platform. Indeed, Moshe couldn't pontificate from a platform because he had a speech impediment. He wasn't the kind of leader that we imagine, someone who could give, give beautiful speeches and rile up the masses. He was someone who internally felt the pain of other people because he expanded his identity to include others. That's when someone else had pain, he had pain as well. And he did whatever he could to alleviate the pain, just like we try to alleviate our, alleviate our pain. And you know what? Even sometimes when we have pain and we try to alleviate it, we can't possibly alleviate all of it. That's why we don't try. So Moshe sees thousands of people suffering. He is suddenly suffering as if there's a thousand people inside of him suffering. So what do you do? Your instinct is to try to help. But you can't stop at all. Well, you got to try anyhow. Try to stop as much as you can. But what's really... We're told about this story specifically to learn about Moshe. What else does he see? He sees an Egyptian man hitting a Hebrew man of his brethren. He turns this way and that way. He sees no one's watching. And he hits the Egyptian he kills him and he buries him. So first of all, he looks right and left, you would assume, simply, it means he looks to see if, you know, is there any cops watching, anyone watching? And, uh, and when no one's watching, he kills him. Uh, I once heard an uh, explanation that Moshe is looking this way and looking that way and seeing that there is no man. Moshe, of course, he's Jewish and he knows that he's Jewish, but he also grew up in the house of Pharaoh. So he has a dual identity. So he looks this when he sees a Jew. And he looks that way and he sees an Egyptian. And he realizes this is not a man. You have to choose your stripes. So he sees the Egyptian hitting the Jew. Well, wait, who's, who, whose side is he, is he going to side with? He sees that you can't possibly have both. And here he makes a decision. I'm Jewish forever. And he strikes the Egyptian. Now, why does he strike the Egyptian? It seems to indicate that Moshe had another quality in his characteristic. And that was an intolerance of evil. Moshe just he was opposed he he couldn't coexist with evil. He sees a, a you know an Egyptian Nazi hitting a Jew what's going on over here? Like the, the only solution is to try to eradicate the evil. Of course there's a lot of evil in the world, but someone who is so connected to holiness they cannot it, it, they just don't coexist with that. Uh, there's a story We'll read in the Book of Numbers about Pinchas, Moshe's nephew, great-nephew. So he responds the same way. He encounters uh, a a horrific desecration of God's name, and he automatically acts instinctually. It's an instinctual revulsion and, uh, and response to evil that Moshe has over here, I don't imagine he said, let me talk to my lawyers. Is this the right thing to do? He saw an Egyptian man hitting a Jewish man. He saw a, you know, a defenseless prisoner being taken advantage of, and he acted because that's the way he was wired. He was wired to act, and he didn't think of all the, of all the various uh, you know, uh, consequences of his action. We'll see. He'll have to flee because of this episode. And now, he buries him in the sand. This is going to be important because we'll see in Parsha, parasha, whenever uh, a, one of the plagues begins with someone striking the sand, it's always Aaron doing it. Moshe is has to be thankful to the sand because the sand helped him in this instance. And by the way, whenever it's water, to hit water, it's always Aaron hitting the water because Moshe, as a little baby, the little floaty uh, boat was on the water. And thus, he's forever indebted to the water and to the sand. And therefore, if if it, even if it's a ceremonial, symbolic strike, Aaron has to do it, not Moshe. So that's day one of Moshe's uh, adventures. The next day, he goes out and he sees another fight. This time it's not an Egyptian and a Jew, it's two Jews. And he says to the wicked one, why are you hitting your friend? He's kind of butting into someone else's business. Again, we see Moshe is admonishing the Jewish man because he sees evil. He sees someone who's striking the fellow. What's going on over here? And the person responds to them, Well, are you suddenly in charge? Are you going to kill us like you killed the Egyptian man yesterday? So they start, they threaten him and say, Oh, we know what happened, what you did yesterday, and we're going to inform the authorities about it. And Moshe got scared, and he says, Behold, the matter is known. So simply, this means is that, oh, it's gotten out that I killed the Egyptian. The cover's blown. That's what that, that's what it seems like simply. Rashi says something very surprising. Rashi says is that Moshe his whole life was wondering what did the Jewish people do to deserve to be enslaved? How come their merits don't save them? And now he sees that they're a bunch of snitches. They're going to tell the Pharaoh about their own brethren, and therefore he sees that there is legitimate reason for the Jewish people to be enslaved, the matter is known. Now I know. It's terrible. What's going to be? How are we going to ever get the people out of here when they're behaving in a way that doesn't lend itself to them being rescued? So the matter gets known to Pharaoh. They put out a warrant for Moshe's arrest. He escapes, and he ends up in the land of Midian. And the third episode is that the prince or the minister of, of Midian had seven daughters. And they come and they try to draw out water from the well. And there's a bunch of hooligans there that didn't like the notion that uh, these girls are coming to take the water. So they would shoo them away. Um, And Moshe gets up and he saves them. And he waters their sheep. And when they come home, it's like come home two hours before their usually scheduled time to come home. So the father asks well, what's the deal? How can we come home so, so much earlier than normal? So they tell them, well, then normally they get uh, uh, they get uh, harassed, thank you, they get harassed at the well, and today some Egyptian man came and helped them. So Yisro, he tells his daughters, well, why don't you bring him home with you? Uh, so they went out and they found this guy, and they bring him home, and he becomes, he actually marries Sephora, the daughter of Yisro. So that's how he meets his spouse. Interestingly, uh, a theme is that if you want to find a spouse, you go to the water, the well. But what's also interesting about this story is that, again, Moshe demonstrates that he has an intolerance for evil. He sees a bunch of defenseless girls being harassed by a bunch of, a bunch of men and in, you know, in, instinctually, even though he's outnumbered and he's a foreigner... He, he just responds right away uh, to what he sees. It's almost as if the goodness and the care that he had for others was, had penetrated himself so deeply that, you know, any evil that was just, you know, elicited an immediate response right away. My grandfather said about this, he said, um, like, you know, when you fill up your car with gas, so there's always these signs, no smoking. Because if there's ever an encounter with a flame and all that gasoline, it has an immediate and devastating response. This, that's the emotion Moshe was with evil. It was a cigarette to his gasoline. He didn't say, well, what, what happens now? It didn't bubble for a little bit. It was just automatic explosion. That's, that's how we responded to evil. And, you know, to us, we like to say, we like to get lurid and salacious details about evil, you know. Under the pretext, maybe of that like, oh, this is so bad. Let me hear more details. <laughs> Don't tell me unless you tell me details. I need, I need to know exactly exactly what happened. Uh, but Moshe, he, the way he he works is that like it immediately incurs a response because that's just the way he was wired. It, you know that that and that that was his character. That was his fabric. That if anything evil that he perceived as evil encountered, he right away acted, whether it was an Egyptian hitting a Jew, a Jew hitting a Jew, uh, a bunch of men harassing uh, a bunch of girls. It's almost like if someone sticks your finger, your finger God forbid, don't do this, but if you stick a finger in a fire, let's say accidentally, you right away pick it up. You don't, you don't make any calculation, okay, my finger is hot, maybe there's fire, fire is really dangerous, it'll burn my finger, I should probably move my finger, right? It happens automatically, right? That's the way he was with evil. He didn't get angry, he just responded naturally. So Moshe marries, Moshe marries, uh, Zipporah. He has a son, Gershom. And the timeline kind of gets disrupted. So Moshe, how old was he when he was, uh, when he grew up? He was a, a teenager, maybe he was 20 years old. Uh, in chapter three, he, become, he has the episode of the burning bush, and he is sent on a mission to save the Jewish people. How old is Moshe at that time? He's nearly 80. What happened to Moshe in the interim? The Midrash talks about it, but we don't really get a lot of details over here. So one Midrash tells us that he traveled the world. Another Midrash tells us that he actually became a king of an African nation. A lot can happened over 60 years. Uh, but we're not told about that, because just like Abraham... We're not told about Abraham in the Torah anything until the age of 75. The Torah is not a book of stories. It's not a book of history. It's certainly not a book of a biography. It's it's a book of lessons. And there's important lessons to learn about Moshe's formation and the background uh, of, of how he became who he was. And right away, we're getting onto the important parts, the important narratives that are necessary for our lessons and our stories. And Moshe's... I'm sure it was very, very fascinating what happened to Moshe. You know, how he further developed into the great man that he became, but we're not told about that. The Almighty chose not to give us that, those details in, in the story. But we are given testimony that there was an increasing of, of work and of enslavement. During those many days that happened, the king of Egypt died. So maybe there's another round of a king. The children of Israel groaned because of the work. They cried out. Their outcry went up to God. God heard their moaning. God remembered his covenant with Abram, Isaac, and Jacob. God saw the Jewish people, and God knew. So what this means is actually details, um, precisely what this means, you will, you will look in the commentary. But it seems that the pattern here is that it got worse, not better, and it's going to get yet worse before it gets better as well. Okay, so what happens here? Moshe is a, a shepherd, and during one episode of shepherding, he sees something really strange. He sees a bush on fire, and it is not being consumed. Moshe is wondering... Why is there a bush that's aflame but is not being combusted? Now, of course we know that this is Moshe's first prophecy or a first prophecy that we're told about. And he's going to be encouraged now to go back to Egypt and save the Jewish people. There's an amazing Rashi here, remarkable teaching in the Rashi, that God is appearing to him in a bush in a lowly bush. Well, why wouldn't God appear to him in a in an oak tree or a cedar tree, something a little more impressive than a little bush? So it's a surprising question. Maybe, maybe it's such a harsh question. Um, maybe it was just arbitrary. But Rashi says that God did not appear to him in a more formidable tree because when the Jewish people are suffering, they're enslaved in Egypt, God, so to speak, suffers alongside of them. And therefore, God's prophecy is also not done in the most dramatic fashion and platform. It'll be a little bush, and that's how he'll get his prophecy. It's a remarkable idea. So he sees the burning bush. He starts talking to the angel of God uh, through this prophecy. He tells him, this is Holy Land... Take your shoes off. And he's told, by God, I saw the suffering of the people. I heard their cries. I knew knew their pain. I'm coming to save them. I want to send you to Pharaoh to take the Jewish people out of Egypt. And that is indeed Moshe's, given his mission, uh, to save the people. Now, where is this place? So we find out in verse in verse 12 that this is actually Mount Sinai. This is on Mount Sinai. That's where he has this experience. Okay, now the first thing that God tells him is take off your shoes. So, I once heard a suggestion that Moshe was someone who so to speak was able to see life from other people's perspective it was, he was able to kind of walk a mile in someone else's shoes. You know, and and, and what shoes are unique uh, garments or food? Oh, not food, clothing type that they mold around the person's specific feet. So if I can wear someone else's T-shirt, it's not so hard to wear someone else's T-shirt. But to wear someone else's shoes, even if they're kind of similar sizes, but they become they become you know, they, they form themselves around someone's particular feet. And therefore, when God tells Moshe, take off your shoes, he's essentially telling him, what is your unique quality that makes you worthy of being this leader, is that you are not wearing your own shoes, so to speak. You're not seeing life from your own perspective. You're going to see life from other people's perspective as well. Now, God proposes, or God instructs, that he's going to go back to Egypt and save the Jewish people. And what results is a whole back and forth, very fascinating back and forth, negotiations between God and Moshe regarding this plan. And if you read it carefully, you'll notice that Moshe has five distinct reservations, or at least inquiries, to God before he agrees to it, to, under, you know, to undertake this, this project. So the first one in verse 11, he says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should take the Jewish people? Out of the land of Egypt, so he's, he's actually asking two questions: Who am I? Like, what's my qualification? And he says, "What about the Jewish people? How? What's the merit of the people that they should get? Uh, they should. They should be worthy of salvation." And the mighty responds to him on both questions: "I'm going to send you, and I'm going to give you a sign, i.e." You are not taking the Jewish people out. I'm taking the people out. You're nothing more than a messenger, number one. And number two, the merit of the people is that when they leave, they're going to worship me on this mountain. Which is really interesting because even though the Jewish people have not yet worshipped God on Mount Sinai, that has not happened yet. When Moshe asked the people... What is their merit that they should earn salvation? God tells them, well, in the future they'll worship me on this mountain. Well, that hasn't happened. Well, it's still considered their merit, even though these, this is an event that happens in the future. So that's Moshe's first reservation. The second reservation, on verse 13, he says, well, what name do I tell them? What name? Like when, when the people, I go to the people, I tell them, the God of your forefathers sent me to you, and they'll ask me, what is his name? What should I tell them? But what to me is just is, is really interesting is the whole notion of what name shall I tell them? Like, is that the real, the biggest question that the people are going to have? What name? And again, we see this actually in, in several places in, in Genesis and of course throughout the Torah, is that God is called by different names. And of course, there's the big brouhaha over this, the Bible critics. This is their central foundational insight is that there's multiple names of God in the Torah. In their mind, that means the only, only possible solution is that there's multiple authors. But the truth is that different names connote different relationships. So when Moshe is asking which name shall I tell them, what he's really asking is the different names of God represent the different ways that he treats us. And therefore, what he's asking is, how are you going to treat the Jewish people with which mode, (laughs) with which method of of treatment, i.e. with which name? And God tells Moshe, I shall be as I shall be, be," i.e., I am always going to be with the Jewish people. and In fact, this is the only time in the Torah this is given as God's name. Because, And the, the name, what the name actually means is that even in the depths of despair of exile, God's with us. And that's the particular quality that they have to know about God right now. And, you know, I think what he's telling him is that it's not... The details are not necessarily so important. It's important for the Jewish people to know that the Almighty, the, fa- the, God, the, Father, the God of their fathers, is going to take them out of the land of Egypt. That's what they need to know. And it's going to work, and it's going to be fantastic. And the particular method that he's going to use, that's God's calculations and not your calculation. And it's sometimes frustrating when we try to understand God, and it's way beyond our conception. Yeah. Now, God, it, God expands his description of what Moshe should tell the Jewish people. And then Moshe, after he gets that, he he adds a... Uh, he adds another problem. He says, well, what if I go there and they won't believe me? And God gives him a, a sign. He says, well, what are you holding? Are you holding a staff? And... Throw the staff on the floor. Staff turns into a serpent. Moshe is terrified from it, and then the might says, "Okay, well, hold on to its, hold on to its tail, and it became back into a staff." What God is essentially telling him: You acted like the serpent, Genesis. You spoke negatively you spoke to about the Jewish people cuz you said they won't believe me they won't believe me they're not they're not people of faith i don't want and the truth is they are people of faith and that's the message is that you acted in a way that's uh, unbefitting he gives them some some other tricks other miracles to do uh, stick your hand into your pocket it changes colors pull it out it turns it, it turns back to it's it turns white stick it in again it uh, res, you know it returns back to its normal uh Complexion. And if that doesn't work, well then just take water and pour it in the ground and turn it into blood. Those are the three miracles that he is armed with to bolster his claims. And then a fourth, a fourth response, a fourth excuse, if you will, where Moses says, Well, I'm not a man of words, I'm not a, I'm not a great orator. And God says to him, Well who makes people speak? It's God who makes people speak. So, your inhib- your inabilities, that's all a result of me, and don't worry, I'll take care of it. And lastly, when he's out of excuses, in verse 13, well, Moshe says, well, why don't you send someone else? Well, who's he referring to? Who should he send in his stead? Aaron. He's referring to Aaron. And that's why God responds is that Aaron, the Levite, he is going to be your spokesman. Now, what's really interesting here is that first of all Aaron's called the Levite we know Aaron's the Kohen Moshe's the Levite, number one but also why is Moshe suggest- God is telling you I want you, Moshe's like I have a better idea, why don't you send Aaron isn't that a better idea and, and indeed everything that happened prior to that were all really excuses, the underlying reason was that he didn't want to offend Aaron it seems that Moshe was worried that Aaron, his older brother, should not be on a lower level, so to speak, than him. Shouldn't be beholden to to Moshe, and he felt that the uh, that the well, Moshe's central characteristic of not having a tolerance for any evil would be in conflict with this episode. That even though we're coming to save the Jewish people, and that's wonderful, but how can we do it on the backs of Aaron's shame, so to speak? Because Aaron is like, oh, my my baby brother's now telling me what to do. That was Moshe's real problem. And how can we save the Jewish people in this manner? That's not the appropriate manner to save the Jewish people. And God tells him, he is also approaching you, and he will see you, and he will rejoice in his heart. The Torah testifies about Aaron that he does not have even a smidgen of envy. And Aaron, by the way, was supposed to be the Levi, but because of this episode, he earned to become the Kohain, and Moshe became the Levi in his stead. And indeed, we know that they, they're, they're going to meet Moshe and Aaron and Aaron is the only person in the Torah that the Torah testifies regarding him, that he had no envy. Whereas all the other Many of the other problems and problematic personalities in the Torah are a result of inborn envy. Cain and Abel, for example, Joseph and his brothers, as well. Of course, a lot of that was motivated by envy. Aaron, we're told, has no envy at all. He's happy in his heart, not just externally. Internally, he's happy that Moshe has prominence, but he becomes an equal with. He becomes an equal with with Moshe, and they're going to go do everything together. And lastly, the Almighty tells Moshe, take this staff with you. You're going to do all the tricks with this staff. And this staff is going to play an important part for the rest of the story. The Midrash tells us a very fascinating backstory of this staff. We're told that this particular staff was created uh, to, in, during dusk time of the day six and day seventh. So it's kind of like a hybrid. It's half physical and half spiritual. And it was given to Adam, in the Garden of Eden, and it ended up with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph had it as well. When Joseph brought it to Egypt, or he had it with him in Egypt, and then when he died, he put it in a museum in Egypt. And then, uh, one uh, Yisro, Jethro, Moshe's father-in-law, he, had, he was initially working for Pharaoh as, a, as an advisor And he was kicked out, and he pilfered it. He snuck it away. And then we're told further that he planted it in his garden, and he said that whoever is able to lift it out of his garden gets to marry his daughter. So when Moshe encounters, they say, okay, well, is this a good idea? So they say, okay, well, go to the backyard. Goes to the backyard. And he sees the staff and he pulls it out. That's the story. And that's why he was able to marry. Now, why was Moshe the only one able to do that is because this is an example. It was created during dust. It was a hybrid of something spiritual. Unless someone was spiritually inclined and had great spiritual powers, they wouldn't be they wouldn't have any access to it. And the whole episode really of the Exodus is going to be this touch point of these two worlds. It's almost as if your know, God's coming to this world and say, okay, the rules don't don't matter. All the rules of physics are thrown are thrown away during the Exodus story because this is a touchpoint of the physical and spiritual world and the physical world does not have its rigid limitations that it normally has because now there's another world with other rules that are in play. Uh, Moshe heads out to, uh, to Egypt on his donkey. And again, we mentioned this before, Uh, There's three people that ride a donkey. It's Abraham and Moshe and Messiah. And in fact, we're told it's the same donkey. And of course, this is not just a lesson about how great people, uh, you know, the methods of transportation, but it means is that their internal donkey, i.e. their internal physicality, materialistic inclinations, they were the rider. They, They had total reins over that and that is their grace, their greatness. Their greatness is that they achieved mastery over their physicality. Uh, Moshe goes and he meets, he meets Aaron along the way. They come to Pharaoh, but first they go and gather all the elders of Israel. So they make a convention of all the elders of Israel, and Moshe explains everything that's going to happen. We're going to go now lobby Pharaoh. We're going to make a march on Washington, and we're going to try to negotiate, uh, that the people should be allowed to leave, or at least leave for a little bit. Um, so they start on this cavalcade towards Pharaoh, and the verse tells us in verse five, in chapter five, verse one, Moshe and Aaron came to Pharaoh. What happened to all the elders? Well, they got cold feet. They all started walking, and then progressively, they dropped out. I'm not, going to go into the, I'm not going to go into the palace and start negotiating with Pharaoh with zero leverage. That's what they uh, said. So eventually only Moshe and Aaron actually made it there. They say, well, um, so said Hashem the God of Israel, send out my people and may celebrate with me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh was not impressed. Who is this uh, who is this God that you're talking about? Um, why should I be worried about them? Don't disturb the people from the work. And as a result, instead of a, of sending them away, Pharaoh made their uh, work more difficult. Instead of providing him the material, them the materials to make the bricks, and they would make the bricks and use the bricks to build their buildings. He said, Okay, from now on, we're not giving them the materials to build the bricks. Indeed, before things got better, things got a lot worse. And that is where our parsha essentially ends. That Moshe is complaining to God, you sent me here to benefit the Jewish people, to bring them out, and now things got worse. Why would you do that to your people? And the Parsha ends where the Almighty pledges to Moshe, you'll see in the end that it'll make sense. Pharaoh is going to send them out uh, so fast they won't do themselves, and a strong hand will drive them out of the land of Egypt, and the parsha ends mid-conversation. Next week, God willing, we will continue that conversation between God and Moshe.